know, I think back about the first time that I did a process like this, and it was about kind of feeling like a zombie walking through life, right? Like just really kind of dead inside, not a lot of meaning. And it was very much one of these kind of warrior processes that you talk about and tracing it back to the the origins of being bullied as a, you know, in middle school and how that kind of shut me down energetically, emotionally, spiritually. And I just remember the end of like busting through kind of a gauntlet of, of people that were holding me back. And that feeling that you're describing at the end of like, uh, I did this, I shed this and standing in a sense of full power and feeling just all the flood of emotions and the energy flying through the body and all sorts of new thoughts and sometimes no thoughts at all, more of just a, a, an electric tingle in your body, right? And from that place, there's an opportunity really to kind of, I think the neural pathways are open in a different way where we can start to repattern the stories we tell about ourselves and uh, who we are and our belief about ourselves. The maladaptive patterns that I adopted over all these years were actually what protected me and kept me safe during that time, usually. And we're a very good survival strategy. <laughs> Getting all mad at my dad would not have been a good idea. My father was a very accomplished killer in the military. He killed a lot of people, and I never saw anybody go off on him ever because you just knew better with my dad. Just don't go there. Those are important patterns. Actually, a lot of things we're calling maladaptive patterns aren't. They're just our safety strategy for how we're going to survive this situation or that situation. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrup. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected, and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. On this week's show, I'm joined by Cliff Berry. Cliff is the creator of Shadowwork Seminars. Shadowwork is a way to help people reclaim lost parts of themselves, and it's a method for helping people heal wounds of the past and become more fully expressed in who they are. Um, it is the model, the method that has helped me more than anything that I've experienced. I'm really thrilled to share this conversation with you. We'll talk about what Shadowwork is, what the human shadow is. We'll talk about various models that Cliff uses when working with people and teaching other people to heal and facilitate. But more interestingly, we talk about the way that Cliff gets his inspiration and his maps and his models and how that information comes to him. We'll also talk about the role of shadow work in today's climate. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe and rate and review the show. Here's Cliff. All right, Cliff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Sounds like fun. Yeah, very happy to have you here joining us today. I think a good place to start is just tell us a little bit about what is shadow work. Well, shadow work is kind of my version of how to work on my stuff, I guess. You know, I was raised in a very tight religious community, kind of religious order. And, um, so there was a lot of shame there about how evil I was. And in getting out of that whole experience, I got to a place where I didn't so much see myself or my stuff as evil. I saw it as shadow. I like 
Carl Jung's definition of shadow way better. Then I like the church's definition of evil down the line anyway. It took me a while to get there, but I did. So shadow work is how you work on your stuff. The stuff that looks bad to you is kind of where you, most people first get in, you know. There's this thing you know that I do that I shouldn't do, but I can't stop. What is it? Ah, maybe it's my shadow doing it. So I have to work on that. But I'll also just in looking at the parts of ourselves that we haven't really looked at, which is another way to find shadow. Not it's not all bad stuff, some it's good stuff. So you find a lot of gold in there too. Yeah. So you mentioned this your own shame as an example of a shadow. Could you say a little bit more about like, I'd love to just hear your definition of what is a shadow? How do we define it? <laughs> what is a shadow? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, the, the widest definition is to just look at pla good old planet Earth and realize that at any given time, half of it's in the light and half of it's in shadow. And you're kind of like that. You may not, um, and you have daily, monthly, yearly, and centurion cycles you go through around that where certain stuff is kind of out in the light where you're showing people this part of who you are. And then there's the stuff in the back that you're not showing them who you are and all that stuff we would call shadow. So it's not necessarily the content that makes it shadow. It's the way you're holding it. If you are repressing that, as they say, or denying that or trying to get away from that or trying to not be that, yet it's you, that's your shadow. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, I love that definition. I love the visual of the earth because it takes out a little bit of the value judgment of that I shouldn't have a shadow. It just simply is as if the earth has its own, its own shadow. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. And as we bring certain things out in the light, because we want to develop that part of ourselves, Actually, some of the stuff we had in the light, we stick back in the shadow. So it's an ongoing process in and out right. of the light. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you and I have known each other for, goodness, it's been 20 years at least, I think. <laughs> I um, think it has. It? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, a, I was a young fella with this bold mission to help young people in some ways eat their shadows, integrate their shadows, help them find a sense of purpose and meaning and found you. And you were quite kind to me and generous in those early days and, and spent a lot of time with me, helping me kind of understand these ways, your ways of working, healing people, helping people become better versions of themselves and evolve as humans. And I look at your work over the last, you know, 20 years and the years before that, and it's the essence of it has remained the same, but there's been this beautiful maturation of the models and the the um, structures and the really, I think you're the way that you teach p other people to to essentially heal others is like is unlike anybody else I've ever come across. Um, your ability to kind of like deliver models and and recipes and very kind of precise ways of of healing others' hearts in a way that like a lot of people can metabolize and digest and use. So I think that's, you know, when I think about your work, it's like very clearly that from my perspective. And I'd love to just, you know, share with this community or, you know, our, our listeners a bit about like some of these models, if you're up for it. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, so first of all, just the four quarter model is like kind of, is like kind of core to your work, right? And could you just talk us through the basics of the four quadrant model? Yes, yes. I first came into contact with that by reading Robert Moore's book, King Warrior, Magician, Lover. He kind of put together some sort of universal four categories for all energies when working with men. And then uh, we kind of adapted that because I wanted to be able to work with women too. So 
Um, but yes, overall, it seems that the model we've developed in shadow work, which a four-part model, four-directional model, works as an overall umbrella for a lot of people in how they approach life and how they approach facilitation work and things like that. You know, that lots of other models uh, can give you pieces of that, but four quarters is a pretty good way to start, I think, primarily because human beings are oriented already to seeing things in four directions. And then when there were kind of four-directional pyramids built on every continent, according to uh, Moore and Gillette, um, and, and, and you can see some of them. And that was the Great Pyramid. When you think about that pyramid, it's four-sided. It's a rather large way of saying, gee, I think things might be four-sided. What do you say? Right? So it just stands there as that this monolith. And it's oriented, of course, directly on the four directions, almost perfectly. Right? So in other words, ancient people honored that. Different ancient people put different human qualities in different directions. They would say, well, we see the, the, you know, the kind of the shaman energy sitting in the West. We think that's where the shaman is. And over in the, in the East, you know, we have the new lover energy. Or, but and all different tribes put all different things in the four directions. There isn't a common map for all of them. But, but most of them did do something like that. That means that over all these years, we are sort of patterned inside to be able to relate to things in a four-directional way. Huh? Yeah. And there's a uh, genetic scientist, Robert Kleininger, you can Google him, um, who talks about the four basic genetic energy streams that go through people, and he has names for them. And, 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 and those four work pretty well with the four we've been talking about, the four sort of overall energies that we talk about. So. I think we kind of got some confirmation from that from science, too. And it's not the only way to sort of cut up the pie into four pieces, right, basically. Mm -hmm. But it's a good way. It, it works pretty well. Yeah. So you use this and you teach this both as a, it's sort of a, a diagnostic tool as a facilitator when helping others kind of heal others' wounds and integrate their shadows. But it's also a personal kind of reference point. It's like a way of using archetypes to understand something deeper about ourselves. So I know for me, like, you know, I find myself looking at, so, so the four quadrants are the lover, in the east, the south is the warrior, the west is the magician or shaman, and the north is the sovereign, king, queen, chief. Um, and what we notice is like we can use these energies to know where we're either deficit, we have deficiency, where we have wounding, we can check in with ourselves. It's like a self model as well around these archetypal energies. I'm just curious, like if you could say a bit more about not just the facilitation piece, but the the kind of internal compass that it can be. People sometimes compare these four energies to the four tires on your car. Like if one of them's low, you got to pump it up a little bit to make the car run better, which is a lot of what we do without so much saying that that energy over there is pure evil. You should just get rid of it. Like in our model, there isn't so much the good ones and the bad ones. There's just four of them. And any of them can be used for ill or for good. But there isn't, we don't so much believe in there being cosmic evil energy you know running things behind the scenes in the world it's not god versus the devil yeah maybe it'd be helpful i you know i think this is really an important piece right like the idea that there's no real kind of evil force in any part of a of a human's soul right it's like we're 
there's a basic goodness, but we can have, we can obviously do evil deeds, right? There's evil deeds, but there aren't necessarily evil parts of a human soul. And in this model, like you can talk, you've mentioned like there's a virtuous aspect of, let's say the warrior quadrant, and there's a a harmful aspect of the, or a maladaptive aspect of the warrior quadrant. Could you give a little bit of some examples of how that manifests? Yes. So let's talk about the the warrior quarter. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about the part of us. This is genetically called our persistence genes. In other words, it, as an individual, whoever you are, as you listen to this, you have more or less persistence genes. You're either a really persistent person, there are a bunch of people like that, and there are folks who have trouble being persistent. They procrastinate, right? So this persistence, this warrior energy, which is also the part of us that has uh, as as tribes that have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, went to war with the tribe next door. So this is the fight part. This is the combat part. This is the confront part, as well as the get her done part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so so let's take that energy, what we would call warrior energy. That can be unbelievably useful in someone's life. If you know that in yourself and you know how to use it, we think everyone has that kind of energy. Everybody kind of has this power, whether they want to have it or not. Everyone has some. So if you have this power, maybe it's a good idea to learn how to use it. So what we do is for folks who are having problems with their warrior energy, we set up symbolic spaces where they can work with it and act it out and learn it and see the good in it and realize how they might be able to shift it around, use it in a balance differently or something. So that warrior energy for me can come out as pretty clean boundaries with you. It can come out as a pretty healthy sense of myself. You know, like I know who I am and as opposed to you, I have those personal boundaries. And this is what helps me deal with conflict if someone brings conflict to me. And this is what helps me really get stuff done, all that. So that can be used very constructively in my life. But of course, this can become when it's what we say out, brought out of shadow, which means you're not aware that this energy is moving in you. You're, you haven't worked with it. It just comes through you sometimes, like when you lose your temper. Like when you scream at your kids, like when you throw something at your partner, like when, it, you know, when this warrior energy just comes out, of course, that does terrible damage in the world, all kinds of violence, all kinds of persecution, all kinds of dominance, uh, you know, uh, setting up hierarchies around the world. I mean, that's, that all comes out of this energy, too. So the same energy, we think, can be used for good or for ill. And so we try to work with people, you know, have a place to a lab to um, explore that energy in themselves where they can't do any harm to anyone. A good analogy for this is to say that despite the fact that we wish there were fewer guns, everyone actually has a gun. It's this anger energy. And if you have one, maybe you should learn how to use it and hit what you're aiming at and not everything else. So well, we, we often work with it in this way, like we set up these ritual firing ranges for people's warrior angry energy. So they learn how to use the thing and hit what they're aiming at, which is usually someone's behavior. If I'm mad at you and I'm going to bring out all my warrior energy, I want to hit the behavior. I don't want to hit your soul. I don't want to hit your self-esteem. I want to hit your behavior. But to do that, I have to know how to aim the thing. So I actually hit what I'm aiming at, and not a shotgun where I hit your self-esteem and your soul and, your, and, and our relationship and all this other stuff, too. And the place to learn how to shoot a gun is not on the street. What a bad idea. 
if you want to, if if you are in any profession that has a sidearm, you have to go to a rifle range, gun range, and practice that thing all the time. If you're going to be allowed to use it for real, that kind of force, we say same thing with your warrior energy, with your anger. You can learn how to use that better. Oh wow, what a what a powerful metaphor for this. And I'm curious, like uh, if you this like working it out the the ritual firing range here, right? Like. Can you describe for those that don't know shadow work? I think a lot of people do. A lot of people that are listening to this show probably do because this work is just so out there in the world. And, and even the phrase shadow work now is just kind of like, it's, it's just in the zeitgeist, right? Mm-hmm. And so thank you. <laughs> thank yeah. you for that contribution. Um, a significant one. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about like, if someone was watching a shadow work process what would that working it out look like? What would the firing, ra- the ritual firing range, so to speak, look like? What would we be seeing? Okay. Well, just so that this can be clearly understood by your listeners, um, if someone comes to Shadowwork to watch something like this, they're gonna, we're going to go through about four hours of setting up with them the way we do this so people understand what we're doing and they understand what we're not doing. In other words, we're setting up a symbolic space that does not have real world consequences and is not real in any way. Right. No real guns at a shadow no real weekend. Guns. <laughs> right. Okay. So what, one of the ways we do that, let, let's say someone's having an issue with their dad. Let's say their dad was really mean to them and hit them a lot or something, right? So we will ask someone to set out another part player. We'll do some role playing. So we get dad out there. And, and, but first we have to make it clear to the, whoever the main person is, that this figure of dad out here in this space is their tape recording of their dad. It's not their dad. It's their tape recording of their dad. That lives in their own body mind, that lives in their ear. They're constantly, these are the voices that we hear that we, we beat ourselves up about, or we, we have these kind of, uh, again, maladaptive views of ourself, essentially, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. It, yes. In therapy, they would call that an, a parental introject. Like they've taken yeah. in this projection. It's not a projection out. It's a projection in, right? And they have this dad. Dad's always saying, you're not good enough. You'll never get there. I can't believe in you. You're worthless. Dad's saying all these horrible things, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then we set it up where someone can bring up their warrior energy. We, we help them get angry. We have people hold them. We have them get really mad at dad and just go off on dad in all the ways they ever wish they could have for real, but couldn't. Just get that energy out. Get it going, right? Go ahead, trash dad. I don't care what you do with dad. Throw things on him, suffocate him, bury him, do whatever you want to do with dad. All played by role players, all set up so no one can get hurt, either physically or psychologically in that space, so that now the person gets to just finally do what they wish they could have done with their dad, right? I want to smack him over the head with a frying pan and throw him out the window. Okay, good. We can set that up. So we get them set up to exercise all of that in a purely symbolic way. And at the end of that, they're often in this place where, oh, 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 oh my goodness, uh, I can't believe I did it. And what that does, the emotions and the hormones particularly the stuff in the brain that gets going when you let yourself be really angry, is very ancient, very primal, and very informative. So oftentimes that person will get into that place, and then suddenly they'll, they'll feel different. I mean, that's what everybody would call a breakthrough in any kind of personal growth seminar, right? They have the breakthrough. What that breakthrough is, is there's different uh, 
hormones flooding through them as a result of the actions they've been taking. The hormones are kicking up all kinds of different stuff in them. And when you feel things differently, especially when you complete a loop that you've been holding with dad for 40 years or something, there's a release of a lot of things that you haven't let yourself experience. So you feel all that. Then you start seeing differently. You see yourself differently. Like, oh my gosh, it's, I thought it was this thing all along, this dynamic with my dad. But now I'm seeing it's really a different dynamic. I can't believe it. Wow. One of the biggest ones for, for a lot of people is to understand, okay, my dad was not this God figure in my life that had to do everything right for me. My dad was a human being, and he really had problems, and he was doing the best he could probably. Or, I mean, things come that you would not expect out of this energy. So people, they sort of rewrite their version of their history or their version of their relationship with dad. Or so it gives you a chance to, from a way, we would say a way more enlightened place. So what we're always looking for is both this emotional shift and then this shift in perception that someone can get where they can just see their whole relationship with their dad differently. I did a process like that. One of the first pieces I ever did was with my dad, right? And then they had me killing him off and he kept coming back to life and I had to kill him again. <laughs> and They really had me do it a bunch of times <laughs> with, this, with this person who's playing my dad. I wasn't really killing anyone. But after I did that the first time, I went home and my dad, with whom I'd had a very difficult relationship all my life, we sat down and talked. Man, it, it made a huge difference in me because I'd blown off a lot of the old stuff around my dad and it had morphed into a, a way more productive uh, stance with him. I would think. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a beautiful, powerful story. You know, I think back about the first time that I did a process like this and it was about kind of feeling like a zombie walking through life, right? Like just really kind of dead inside, not a lot of meaning. And it was very much one of these kind of warrior processes that you talk about and tracing it back to the the origins of being bullied as a, you know, in middle school and how that kind of shut me down energetically, emotionally, spiritually. And I just remember the end of like busting through kind of a gauntlet of of people that were holding me back. And that feeling that you're describing at the end of like, uh, I did this, I shed this and standing in a sense of full power and feeling just all the flood of emotions and the energy flying through the body and all sorts of new thoughts and sometimes no thoughts at all, more of just a, a, an electric tingle in your body, right? And from that place, there's an opportunity really to kind of, I think the neuropathways are open in a different way where we can start to repattern the stories we tell about ourselves and uh, who we are and our belief about ourselves, And often we come out with some sort of like pretty potent statement about who we believe ourselves to be from that place. And for me, those statements have become the way that I have evolved over time. Like when I start to feel low energy, like a bit of dead inside, I remember that I am, I thrive, you know, I am a, as a human, I'm a thriving human. And I, or if I find myself in a place of shame, I, I, you know, these statements come up about like my worth as a human and, and who I truly am. And over time, I think these statements, these kind of mantras, these affirmations are one of the ways that we kind of, we, we actually shift these maladaptive patterns into something that is 
fuller expression of who we are. So I'm just curious, you know, how you relate to that that idea. Yeah, no, that's very true. I think what we often say about is that the maladaptive patterns that I adopted over all these years were actually what protected me and kept me safe during that time, usually. And we're a very good survival strategy. <laughs> Getting all mad at my dad would not have been a good idea. My father was a very accomplished killer in the military. He killed a lot of people, and I never saw anybody go off on him ever because you just knew better with my dad. Just don't go there. Those are important patterns. Actually, a lot of things we're calling maladaptive patterns aren't. They're just our safety strategy for how we're going to survive this situation or that situation. And then we can go into a process, I think, and as Ron Herring, one of the founders of this kind of work with men, used to say, lay down a different track in the brain, bust through another neural pathway. The old one actually doesn't go and isn't transformed as much as it's because it's still there. And if you get back in a survival situation, you'll use it again. No problem. You may go into it again, but you've got another neural pathway now. Now you can take the same energy another way a more productive way. And you have that choice, which is what you're talking about. When you get down or the shame starts to get you, in other words, doing this work doesn't mean you never go down into your shame anymore, does it? It means that, but it means you've been sort of initiated relative to that energy into a different way of viewing it, a different way of bringing it, a different way of interpreting it. And you can flip over that neural pathway and use it differently in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And over time, it really, I mean, just the beauty of this work over time, I'm blessed to be in a community of facilitators. We get together every year, we do deep piece of work. And like every year, you know, it's just like we slowly kind of digest those those places of closure in our psyche. And over time, over now 20 plus years for me, it's like there's fewer, you know, it's like it's it's absolutely possible to heal the shame, heal the anger, heal all the places of hurt and contraction. And over time doing this type of work, I think this is the work for me that has healed these wounds more than anything else. There's also processes where people don't know how to let love in and be vulnerable anymore because they got so hurt it wasn't safe. So there's process where people learn how to let love in, right? There's places where it wasn't safe for people to dream and fantasize and just get a whole mission in what they could be in their life. People have been wounded there, so that's more of the sovereign work. And then in the magician, a lot of folks don't understand in our good old rugged individualism, Western model, that if you're going to get where you're going, you might need it to be safer than it is, or you're not going to get there. So learning how to actually make your life safer and not call yourself a chicken for doing it is also another important one. So there's a bunch of of circuits that we work in there, not just Angela. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's um, part of this is like you're a map maker, right? These circuits, I'm a you, map maker. Yes. <laughs> you see these circuits, you you feel them in your being, and then you have this like a uh, profoundly effective way of like transmitting these to others so that they can use use these to help people. And I get, I'm really curious about. You know, I've known you for a while. Like I mentioned, I, you know, I was a student at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. You were living out, you know, you were living near Boulder and, and we'd spend, gosh, we spent so many days and hours and nights together. And I did, you know, I painted your house, you know, did all sorts of fun things to just kind of hang out with you. And in that process, I mean, it was such a cool time in life for me where I was, you know, exposed to all sorts of great things, but really like you were the guy that kind of took me under your wing and you know you were so patient with me as a young 20 something uh so i thank you dearly for your patience with me sure. um, but one of the things i learned about you in that 
that uh, era of life of just like being around your house and seeing how you did life was that you get these con- you get information in a way that I've never really seen other people get information and mm-hmm. <laughs> often I'd show up at you know I don't know 10 in the morning and you had been up for already a half a day and <laughs> had true. some yep. some sort of you'd been up since one or two in the morning and had some sort of new information come to you and I was I, if you're willing I'd love for you just to share a little bit about you know all of these maps and models and energy circuits and ways of healing human souls like where does that come from in you or through you Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Well, the community I was brought up in was a Christian, Swedenborgian Christian community. And what I was taught from a very young age, and I was always really interested in the church stuff. I was the little kid that would sit through the whole adult service too, because I was just like, wow, I just like this internal spiritual stuff. In Swedenborgian religion, Swedenborg was a mystic who communicated with spirits who told him what to write about Christianity, about the Bible. Swedenborg's theory about what what my consciousness was, was this, that my consciousness consisted of the influx I was getting from the different spirits that were around me or from God, but that's what consciousness was. So I grew up believing that none of my thoughts, I wasn't generating any of my thoughts. I wasn't generating any of my feelings. I had a sense, they, they talked about free will there. I, I had free will. I could make decisions. I did things and I did the wrong things. I was really bad. And if I did the good things, I was good. We had all that. But I took away that there are these two consciousnesses we have. We have our workaday every world consciousness where we have to make enough money and survive. And there's that out there where we just interact like we're responsible for everything we do. We're coming up with our own thoughts. We take credit for them. We do all this. Okay. But on the spiritual level, the idea is to acknowledge that this is all coming into you. You're not creating any of this all from some, some spiritual dimension. And he described the different levels that this came down to and all the different societies of people who'd lived before and were living there now channeling all this up to me. So throughout my life, I've kind of thought about when I look into my own mind, my own consciousness. Um, I started out thinking about it that way. So that's sort of a, a unique way, I think, of growing up and being introduced to your own consciousness. That sometimes there's these folks talking to me in there, and I'm just a listener. And then as I got older, there were times when I thought I was near death. Times when I thought I was near death, like I was in car crashes at times or different circumstances. I won't describe all of those. Where then voices would really show up and start telling me what to do, partly for my own safety, like get out of here, or you're really doing a lousy job with this thing here. And we got some, you know, we're going to straighten you out, pal. Here's the way you've been looking at it. And I'm like, yeah, that's the way I've been looking at it. Well, here's the way we look at it. And I'm like, oh, whoa, that's so cool. Okay, how do I get from here to there? Show me. And they, so I would get this sort of input that I, at that time, imagined was at times from God or from angels and spirits just talking to me. And, and a lot of the quote-unquote bad stuff we framed as bad spirits talking to me. So I developed a pattern in my life where with some regularity in my adult life, there would be times when I would be afraid I was about to die. Hmm. Even when I wasn't. 
Not okay. This was something that I'd heard of a million times about in church, hearing about Swedenborg. He said there are certain spirits that can come and make you think you're going to die right now because it really gets your attention. And then if they have something to tell you, you're bound to listen. Well, I had that experience mm. uh, quite often, and I mean, and I don't mean kind of afraid I'm going to die. I mean terrified I'm going to drop dead right now. The next heartbeat's not coming. I'm going to fall dead right here, right now. Because all my life is being funneled into me. I'm not generating my own life. That's being held by all these angels and spirits and all these network of people around me. And if they just cut the plug there, I'm dead. I just drop dead. And I would just be terrified. And then I would hear these things. And then I would see these things. And then it would kind of show me next level or something. Which makes sense, actually. Uh, I mean, anthropologists will tell you that most human spirituality comes from, they think originally, humans looking at death. Somebody died and they had to figure it out, like from there, or they were near death. So that's not terribly uncommon um, in in that way. And then uh, I sort of also, uh, after working with sort of the idea that, okay, I'm getting this from God, or I'm getting this from spirits and angels. Or later, I'm getting this from ancestors. There's just ancestors. I also found a place where uh, in in studying more evolution uh, 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 around how we've evolved, realized that um, if you're really going to seriously study evolution, you're going to study it with the idea that there isn't some spiritual realm that created everything. Our consciousness is is what matter evolved into which is an equally spectacular thing to even ponder. Can you imagine evolution starting with matter and ending up with human consciousness? That that was done by our brains, our bodies evolving it through the regular old process of evolution. So then I began looking at my thoughts as evolution talking to me. One of the ways I do this is I'll put a chair out in the room and step into it and pretend I'm evolution, and I'll start talking to Cliff. And you should hear what evolution says to Cliff. Um, It's fascinating also in the sense that evolution will tell me, okay, Cliff, you think you've been hearing these gods and spirits and angels and all these things all your life. That's really us. We have all these memories embedded in here. You know, We have every memory of every encounter you've had with every person your whole life in here. You think we couldn't take some of those and cobble them together into a voice that would talk to you? No problem. Hmm. We know the tone. Like, we could use different voices from your past. We'll probably use the voices of your 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 most loved mentors to talk to you through here. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that. Oh, yeah. And how about if the genome itself is in communication somehow with the other genomes around the world? Does that mean there could be a kind of universal consciousness just through the fact that we all carry the same genome? Is there any communication between any of that? There certainly is in my body. Is there any communication between the genome in you and the genome in me? The genome in me greets the genome in you. So I started looking <laughs> at it without the spiritual dimension, and it was equally as wonderful. Like the the explanation for some of the things that human beings do through an evolutionary view is makes makes way more sense than through a lot of the spiritual interpretations of those things. I guess the primary one being that from a spiritual point of view, uh, we are taught that um, human beings lived in this perfect place with God for many years, 
And then they made some really bad decisions. And then all this evil came about and we really blew it and we're still paying for it, which is kind of world religion 101. I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> an awful lot of spiritual faiths that believe that, right? As opposed to saying, we evolved from animals. We are still mostly animals. We have all these urges that don't fit into a civilized society now. A lot of our lust, a lot of our hungers, a lot of our anger, a lot of things that we evolved for millions of years to help us survive. All of a sudden, people you know, come in and say, well, our version of God doesn't like that. That's this evil force now. That's the devil in you. Well, evolution blows that all off. It says, no, there was never any Garden of Eden. There was never every perfect time. We've just been evolving, right? And all these horrible things we're still doing to each other are the result of the genes in us that have been adapting for millions of years so that we would survive. And by the way, that really worked. We really did survive. Holy cow. We went from the middle of the food chain to the top of the food chain. We are now dominant over every other species on the, we will wipe out any of them now. It's so like, it worked. Okay. So a lot of what we call all the bad stuff in people is really just a lot of our evolutionary genetic material that we're programmed to do that doesn't happen to fit in today's society. So we need to learn to have places where we can hold that without it hurting anybody. So some of the work we do is also that. We will set up symbolic spaces for ourselves where we can blow off and learn from some of our darker energies and, and learn to practice that just regularly, regularly, regularly. Because if I have a circuit in me that's genetic, that's not going away tomorrow. I don't care how much personal growth I do. I'm still going to have that. Like for men, if you look at your lust, not going away anytime soon. So what are you going to do with it? Well, you, you need a place to hold that where it's safe. So it's not coming out everywhere else. Yeah. And this is the whole uh, concept of ritual spaces yes, versus right. real yes. spaces, right? A delineation around uh, something that could cause real life consequences versus a place that is contained where you can go into these darker impulses, these darker places in our heart, in our mind, in our body to, in a kind of cathartic way, exercise that, that energy in us so that um, so that when we step back into the real world, that energy is kind of like tamed a bit, right? It's a bit more focused. Yes. And oftentimes we can just use it way, way better. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and, and we, we say symbolic space rather than ritual because some folks react to ritual, but ritual or symbolic. Yes. And this, by the way, is one of the things that they think human beings got them ahead is that we could think about things in an abstract place where we weren't actually doing them. We can reflect on them, right? So, so if someone goes to a therapist and talks about how they want to, you know, strangle their partner or hit their boss or something, what we're doing is we're already doing that. We're doing it in a symbolic realm of words. And that's what language, one of the things language enables us to do. I can go, you know, spit it out, talk about it with someone else or a friend or something and get the energy out of it. Maybe reflect on it. Some say, now when I go back into the real situation, I want to act differently than I would if I hadn't looked, right? So we do that already, but this is kind of an extension of that that gets a lot more emotion involved and stuff so you can get a little deeper shift. Yeah, that's great. I want to go back to this this idea around like just your journey around the spiritual moving into a deep appreciation for evolution. And, you know, I think about my own relationship to this kind of paradox, right, of 
um, growing up in a highly spiritual community, Catholic church. So spiritual in that sense. Right. But lots of energies flowing, Holy spirit and wonderment and belief and faith. And, and then kind of going through a period of like science as my religion, right. And pushing a lot of that away and, and shattering all of the unnecessary illusions around really religion. Right. And how both phases of life for me were very unsatisfying in a certain way, right? Like the the blind faith, there's something about that that is just so disempowering. But there's also something about a lack of wonderment and awe and mystery uh, in the kind of uh, science as a religion that um, I think makes life unsatisfying. There's like a lack of fulfillment when we don't have some sense of mystery. And what I hear you saying in this this kind of sophisticated view of evolution is that wonderment and awe are at this the heart of that, and how beautiful and how kind of mind blowing evolution can be. And I'm just curious, like how you relate to these ideas of of wonderment, awe, mystery, necessary parts of living a fulfilled life for me, at least. You know, in the book Sapiens. The Terrari, I think. Amazing book. Highly recommend it. All of his cool work is book. great. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So even from a, a scientific point of view, and uh, he's not a lover of Homo sapiens. He kind of hates us for what we've done to the planet. But he outlines how even early in the development of Homo sapiens, we have this ability to all get together on these, what he calls these completely fictitious ideas, that humans have this unbelievable ability to line themselves up around completely false, ridiculous ideas. And he's talking about religion and stuff. <laughs> but he thinks that that's, that's why we survived, actually. And, and you can make a good case for that, in that um, when as monkeys, we had to come down out of the trees and be down with the leopards, right? Uh, did we grow giant teeth? No. Did we get big claws? No. What did we do to fight leopards? We learned with our brains to all get the same idea and act in a coordinated fashion. We became expert rock throwers and eventually we could all coordinate a team and we could actually kill the leopard. Yeah, he talks about it as, as like storytelling, right? A collective story. That's so we right. need to be able to train ourselves into a collective story, whether it's throwing rocks or, or something else, yep. right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Well, if if you take some of his his I think sort of cynical view off that you'll also see that all the advances of civilization were due to someone thinking of something and getting a bunch of other people online for that right mm -hmm. the expert I like to quote on that is Hermit D Frog who says somebody thought of that and someone believed him and look where we've come so far <laughs> which is true that's the rainbow connection song right uh -huh. okay so 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 human beings that's genetic that's actually built into us and we are the species that can do that can dream well let's, how about if we had a whole different role in nature and then we all get on board for that idea and then we go and those things are generally that's novelty seeking at work in us People who have, they can now measure some of these novelty seeking genes in our brains. They can't measure all of them, but they can go find the genes. Those are the guys who say, ah, there must be, let's go for something new. Let's go over that next mountain. Let's go for the next thing. Let's go for the next thing. Well, we did. We went for the next thing, like language, like art, like science. Those were all like that. So that's a magnificent survival strategy, too, and we're not getting rid of it. Harari hates the fact that we go for these fictitious ideas, that there are these weird gods up there and all this stuff going on. Okay, but 
Um, if you're going to think of something that doesn't exist yet, that you're going to end up creating later, you're going to think of something fictitious because mm -hmm. it doesn't exist yet. So we have this ability from our genes, I think, collectively to think about things we don't have and then try and make them come real in our life. So that's also been our survival. So as in everything else in shadow work, because we try and avoid a lot of the good bad in our models, here's the good stuff, here's the bad stuff, despite the fact that in humans, every time we get through a phase, we think, okay, I'm never doing that again. That's the bad one. Now I'm in the good one. That's usually not true and doesn't work very well. It works best to realize there's a paradox. Sometimes I think about it this way. Sometimes I think about it this way. Which would work best for the best outcome in this situation? So I find myself, even now, thinking about God sometimes. Even though, from other places, I don't believe in that at all. But they say, what, well, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? So sometimes that works. Sometimes it works to think about spirits, angels, ancestors talking to me. Sometimes I'm thinking, this is just evolution doing my brain here. Other times, I, and a lot of the time, I think, no, Cliff Berry's this individual guy. I make the shots around here. I'm in charge of all this stuff. I do that one. So it isn't which is the right one. It's which one you want to use right now mm. or which combination you're going to use right now for this situation. Mm. Yeah. If I'm trying to heal someone or help someone or accomplish something in my life, what am I going to use? The more parts of myself I can know, the more I can harness them, have them working together in teams to get stuff done. That's what mm. I'm interested in. Yeah. Because I'm a big novelty seeker. I want to bring something new into the world. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I love that. It's it's uh, so powerful. So there's the genetic piece, right? You're talking about like the DNA is is just doing its thing, right? And so in some ways we could say like these are our ancestors speaking to us, right? So there's a, there's a path here around um, for those of us that have deep connection to our ancestors and spend time in communion with our ancestors, there's certainly an overlay with what you're saying about, you know, this just kind of genetic um, program that's running, it's playing itself out. Yes. Yep. Yes. Certainly the, the times I, I put my, my, my genome out and talked to me said, Hey, if you would like me to show up as a voice, that wouldn't be a problem for me. So when you say put it out, like just to be clear, this is like part of the shadow work process, right? It's based. Yes. I mean, if you could maybe just say a word about the, the lineage, right? So this is some of you, you've pulled some of this from like voice dialogue and some gestalt therapy. I mean, there's a lot, there's a really rich yes. lineage. Mankind but, project stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. And, and, Fundamentally, it's, you know, some people will call this a bit of like parts work, right? Where there's aspects of our being, our soul, our body, mind, our heart that we can put out, meaning like separate it from our central ego, put it on the other side of the room, talk to it, and then actually switch and talk from it and create conversations with different aspects of ourselves. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. Cliff is the guy that really, I think, pushed this out into the world like no other. Um, so when you're saying you're like speaking from your genome, you, you, yes, you go on the other side of the room, huh? And you Sorry, just... Yes, I do. Yes. Yes. So we set up a space for it first because it has to be, make sure it's symbolic. Yes, that's right. But I would say, I mean, John Bradshaw and talking about your inner child. Now that's, you started in the seventies or something. And that's become a very commonly accepted. Well, what's your inner child? That's, that's a part of you on the inside, right? That you sometimes consult that sometimes speaks back to you. Right. So we, so more like accept that. We don't so much talk to them by having you close your eyes and go inside and talk to them. You can do that. 
There's a form of therapy now called internal family systems, where you can get from a lot of therapists, wonderful work. And and when you have a problem, they'll come in and say, well, let's go talk to this part of you. Let's go talk to this part of you. And you just close your eyes and go and talk to these parts. So they talk to each other. You resolve it by looking at parts. Mm -hmm. In shadow work, we tend to put them out on, on what we call a carpet. Uh, in a space there where we can actually do the more external sort of psychodrama split out thing with them, get those sort of family dynamics where they are out where we can see them. We have people in the room playing them, or we have the person switch into them and play them themselves to get to know them better, our different parts. Yeah. And this is where this technology is just so powerful because of course it's, it's, you know, it's, I think it's most powerful. It's done in groups where there's witness and you can have these reflections back to you. You can like get the part of your mother that shamed you. You can put somebody in that part and then she's, you know, she's in your face saying the words that she said to you when you were such a young pup and you get to have that emotional reaction, the kind of vagal nerve, um, you know, is fired up and like it, you know, you're getting that very real Kind of a regressive experience where then you can heal that wound right um which is like the essence of group shadow work but you also can do this i do this all the time by myself where no one's no one's seeing me do it i am uh moving over three inches in my chair and i'm i'm speaking from my heart as and then i'm moving over six inches the other way and i'm speaking from my gut or you know my balls uh you know like finding different parts of my body mind and um, using this kind of the aspect of the self that, that has some sort of fear, concern, confusion. Um, so these tools for me are like, you know, they're not just about the kind of public other people. There's a way that when you, when you spend enough time with them, you start to really develop relationship with parts of yourself, um, that can be incredibly healing, empowering, clarifying. It's great for decision-making. So, um, that's, that's how I use it as well. Mm -hmm. So I want to go a little different direction as we, you know, we, we start to bring this to a close and I want to paint a picture of, I got on a plane, I flew over the North pole. I landed and met your, your sweetie Vicky and was picked up by landed in Moscow, was swept away into a retreat center outside of Moscow. And we spent a week with our colleagues, John and Nicola Kirk, who live in the UK and trained we did a shadow work weekend with about 30 people attending and then did another, I don't know, four or five day training, training facilitators <laughs> in Russia about how to do shadow work. And I have to say it was one of the coolest experiences, most intense, um, difficult, challenging. I did this several times over a few years and there's a thriving community of shadow workers in Russia and there's a thriving community of shadow workers in all across the UK and down under and all these pockets around the world that's popping up. This, this technology is spreading and finding its ways into all these various forms. And I'm just curious what that's like for you. What's how, what is it like to see, you know, your kind of life's work take off and pop up in a place where, you know, a place like Moscow, Russia. Yeah. I'm I'm just always so tickled. I'm so happy that people found it useful. Like, good, that was that was what I wanted. That was the second most important thing I wanted. The first most important thing I wanted was I wanted to be able to explore all this stuff. And my excuse for spending my life on being able to explore everything in my brain I wanted to explore was that I create something out of it that would be useful for people. So that that's for me 
wonderful. And uh, although there were times in my life where I was certainly driven to heal the planet with this work, I was just going to heal the whole thing. Um, I realized now that that's not what's going to happen or even necessarily what should happen. Hmm. Yeah. But it, but it's also validated that me exploring all these seedy little corners of my own brain turned out to be useful somehow. So I'm allowed to keep doing it. <laughs> Please keep doing it. Please keep doing it for all of us. I'm curious where you see like this moment we're in as a culture. It's a very challenging time, especially on this continent. And the world is a much different place than when you and I met 20 some years ago. And I'm just curious, like as a man who's spent a few turns around the sun and I'm just curious, like, what do you see this moment? What do you see about this moment we're in and kind of the role that shadow work can play or does play in it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's certainly been a time of polarization, hasn't it? Mm. Incredibly marked polarization in, and in people trying to sort of clash of consciousnesses, uh, you know, people seeing they have, we're bringing this whole new, way of for humans to be can't everybody get on board and other people saying hell no we're not getting bored on for that trash are you kidding me we're trying to restore the old way or or this other way that humanity is supposed to be this is way more fundamental it's way more important and we are in this polarization of that right now almost like never before we're sort of all sidling up i mean this is also programmed into us to occasionally come to this place with a tribe next door and go to war with them. Every culture did that. Every culture had plenty of that. There's so much of that present where we do occasionally come to these places. I mean, look at what happened around World War II. Like, it seems like all these countries kind of went crazy, didn't they? They went sort of fascist crazy. And now there's this huge war. And that's not unusual in human history, is it? Two men, I think, who wrote the book, The Fourth Turning, talk about how often that happens and that there's a pattern for that. Okay. So that's happening right now. We're starting to nose to nose, right? But I'm noticing that there is a chance that we're going to do this one, however ugly it is, however awful it is, without actually going to world war over it. And if human beings can pull that off now, that would be a great step forward. And there's a man named Steven Pinker who's talking about how violence has been declining around the world throughout history. As we get more civilized, we're just being less violent about things. And maybe, so maybe, so I have hope, maybe there's a chance here. Looks like actually some of the sides right now are softening a little bit, in my opinion, um, and looking for other solutions. So I think uh, as, as I read things, and I'm not a scholar enough to know, but my little window on the world. Your, your spirits whisper to you, uh, what? <laughs> That's right. There's been this intense polarization. And a lot of folks are really frustrated with the polarization that's going on, whether it's around gender, whether it's around race, whether it's around anything, whether it's around immigration, doesn't matter what it's around, abortion, there's this thing. And they're just hitting. And that, that, that folks are starting to look for, is there another way to do this? And humanity has done some cool things about that. Um, you know, in, in, in the Dark Ages uh, across Europe, they, there were some estimated 50,000 little warlords. They were called knights, but they were not noble people. Um, pretty much <laughs> rape and plunder, these guys, who were just at war with each other all the time, right? We're not in that place anymore, nor is Europe. And, and some of what's replaced it is sports. 
Look at sports for a minute. Here's a place where every city can go to war with every other city regularly uh, through football, baseball, whatever it is. We can go to the stands. We can yell, kill them. We can get drunk. We can go crazy. We can vent these parts of ourselves. And no one actually dies. Not bad. Helps cut down on the old inner city, interstate warfare, doesn't it? Okay, so humanity is capable of across the board coming up with more stylized ways of doing that combat or that battle we want to do and not coming out and doing it for real. So I think that that's very much what's at the crux of it for me right now. And I'm trying to focus on around race, gender, those things. What are the sorts of sports for those things? Hmm. What are the more ritual ways that wider humanity could engage in to get involved in that? Have it bring up all your shadows, all your dark stuff. Get it out there. At the end of the day, you know, somebody wins that round and somebody loses that round, but we're going to have another season next year. We're going to have another game next week or something. Okay, we lost this time. Next time we're going to win. How could we do that around gender and race and stuff like that? Right now, I don't think there's the courage to even try it. It's a lot of these things you're not even supposed to joke about right now. Mm-hmm. And, and to take them into a symbolic space, you'd have to be able to hold them a little more lightly. But hopefully, human beings will develop ways to do this. Uh, I, I think a man, Bill Kauf, who was on your show mm-hmm. at one point, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, once said, you know, I think what we ought to do, this was when the America and Russia were facing, like you said, we should get an island in the middle. They should have their best warrior. We should have our best warrior. We should put them on that island, and it should be a fight to the death every month, once a month. And different guys would win at a different time. We could all tune into it, really get into it, ah, do the whole thing, and just bleed it off. And I think he was right. And there were tribes in a, there's a book called Ring of Fire. Mm. It talked about tribes. Uh, down in the New Guinea area, I don't think it was New Guinea, where, where they actually did that. They had stylized, ritualized combat. Uh, sometimes someone died, hmm. but then that solved it for that year. So, I would, so we've, we've done some of that with war. Can we do it with, uh, you know, uh, oppressing people? Can we do it with gender stuff? Can we do it with these other things? Hmm. Wow, fascinating. It's really interesting. Make an interesting sports league. I just can't quite figure out what we'd be playing out there, but it'd have to be the men against the women or uh, people of color against people, uh, uh, you know, Caucasian people or something. Like, mm-hmm. how can we do that? I don't know. Wow. Fascinating idea. That's what I like to see. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing that vision. Uh, but what an interesting <laughs> yeah. wrinkle on shadow work. Uh, uh, your, your work has evolved, Cliff. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Let's get them out there duking it out. <laughs> right on. Well, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for joining the show today. And also just thank you for all of uh, your gifts that you've given to the world, to me. And uh, it's just a real honor to have this conversation with you and to be able to share your incredible wisdom uh, with the people in this community and people finding this show. Um, so thank you, my dear friend, mentor, guide. Um, you are a, you're a special man. Love you big. Love what you're doing. Anytime I put into you was clearly worth it. Mm. So. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. and Maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our Crazy Wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen, that you try one new thing, one thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy. 